This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm late. I'm late for a very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. My friend Lorne Michaels told me that back in the 1970s, when he launched Saturday Night Live, there were only a handful of comedy clubs in the United States. Today, there are hundreds of comedy clubs, and Americans have available to them an ocean of sitcoms, late-night talk shows, and streaming comedy specials. To distinguish yourself in that world of comedy is a very difficult thing to do. My guest today has succeeded at just that. Actor, writer, comedian Patton Oswalt has appeared in many sitcoms, including The King of Queens, AP Bio, The Goldbergs, Veep, Reno 911, Parks and Rec, and Brooklyn Nine-Nine. He's written two books, including a memoir, silver screen fiend about his love of movies and he does a lot of voiceover work from my little pony and word girl to archer and bojack horseman and perhaps most memorably as remy in pixar's ratatouille first of all i'm a rat which means life is hard and second i have a highly developed sense of taste and smell Flour, eggs, sugar, mm, vanilla bean. Oh, small twist of Patton Oswald has released three Netflix comedy specials, including last year's I Love Everything, where he riffs on parenting, home ownership, and turning 50. If you were to fly a helicopter low over the earth, you know what you would see? You'd see people in their 20s gobbling drugs, eating delicious food, having sex. People in their 30s with actual jobs making the world run. People in their 40s trying to fuck the 20-year-olds. And then us, the gentle, surrendered 50-year-olds. We've got our earbuds in, listening to podcasts, which are done by 20-year-olds that nobody wants to fuck. In April 2016, Patton Oswalt suffered 
a great loss, the sudden death of his first wife, true crime writer Michelle McNamara. She was 46. She left behind Patton and their then seven-year-old daughter, Alice. My absolute first thought was, why isn't it me? She should be here. She's doing, in my opinion, the more important work and yeah. has the better bond with, and it, it would be a better example for to raise our daughter with. Not, not to, I, I don't believe in, you know, um, false modesty, but if you're going to choose um, a person to emulate, you would, oh yeah, have, do, do Michelle more than A girl Pat. and her mother. Yeah, yeah exactly. You can't yeah, replace yeah, yeah. a mother. You can't replace a mother. Right. No, no, no. What was that like for you in those early stages of managing that, not just your grief, but your single parenthood? You know, well, you know, I didn't think about this aspect of it, but part of being a dad, at least part of my process is going off and having some solitude to be with my thoughts and then be there. Because I was hardwired with that old patriarchal model of I'm the one who goes out into the wild and gathers up the firewood and the kills the meat and brings it all back. And then when I'm home, I relax while they all prepare it. So then I had to do, I had to still go out and get the sustenance, but then be there and be the parent. So there was about a year of kind of adjusting to, I very early on stopped judging myself for maybe not being the most dynamic, but I was going, I'm here though. I'm physically here when I'm home and she's home. I'm here. And I just, and you find out that if you want to, you can adjust your schedule to go, okay, well, she's in school for these hours. So this is when I will do work. And this is when I will get stuff done. And the minute she's done, work has got to know that I'm not available now. And I want to go pick her up at school and come home with her and just be with her. And that was, that was how it was for a while. That's what we're, that's where we're recording at this time. Cause this yeah. is the time when my two youngest boys, not the baby, but the two middle boys, they take a nap. Right. People always say to me, when are we recording the podcast? I go, one o'clock, it's nap time. <laughs> when they when they nap, yeah. It's the only time the house is quiet enough to record. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. A lot of times what, what you learn is when my daughter was talking to me, I had to get over my impulse to go, well, what is the action thing we can do to solve this? A lot of times she wasn't looking for the action solution. She just, let's just talk this out and look at it. We don't need a solution right now. I just want someone to hear me hmm. and then to say back, oh yeah, that is really bad. And I don't actually have an answer right now. Like that hmm. in a weird way, that was more reassuring because coming back with an immediate action solution almost feels to that person, especially to my daughter. Sometimes it, I think it felt like, I don't think he really was listening to me. I think he just wanted to jump to the solution. And it seems like men want to jump right to the solution. Exactly. And women are so much more Process. patient and, and confident in going, let, we don't need to have us. Let's just keep, let's look at this you for a while. The and then, <laughs> it's so exactly. True. You know, it's and men are like, no, we solve it right now. So, but, but there's, and nothing makes a man panic more then you don't have the answer where there's not only do you not have an answer, but when you realize the answer is there is not an immediate solution. Like if there's friend drama um, at school and I, and I had to go, I guess you have to go back tomorrow and talk to her or t like, like there wasn't this specific, 
I want her to do that, like the Goodfellas thing of like, if someone was being mean to her at school, like grab her and put her head in a pizza oven and go, yeah. if I hear one more exactly. thing, you know, exactly. but that's not, it doesn't work that way. When I say to my daughters, I'm like, I, I don't say this, but she'll be like, she'll be crying. And she'll be like, you know, Amanda was so mean to me. Amanda was mean to me on our Zoom call. Ah! And, she's <laughs> and I'm like, and, and, and my wife is so in the process and the, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the appro- and I'm like, why don't you just tell Amanda to go fuck herself? I mean, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm going, let's just, you know. Uh, yeah. Like, maybe I should go talk to Amanda. No, <laughs> I'm not straight out, no. Amanda. Yeah, no, you don't need to go into the school. <laughs> Angry 60-year-old man yelling at an 8-year-old. Your, your, your wife was a writer her entire career? She was, yeah. I mean, she started as a writer in college. She taught writing at uh, Michigan and then started. It was weird. She started writing TV shows and, and screenplays in Hollywood they were comedies, but they were crime adjacent. And then as she wrote them, she, even if you're writing a comedy about a crime, you have to at least know the crime has got to make sense or it doesn't, you know, the comedy falls apart. So in researching the crime aspects of it, she started realizing, oh no, I really like the crime way better. I don't want to write comedy. I want to actually- I don't want to write springtime for Dahmer. You know, I don't want to- (laughs) None of that for me. Yeah. So she worked as an assistant for a, a private eye for a while, like did cases with him and and just that became her thing. And then she when we got together, you know, she would tell me just the labyrinthian details of these cases that she would just research online. And I was like, why don't you just because I had a webmaster, I had a web page for my shows. I'm like, I'll just pay him a little extra. Let's get to have a website. Just write this stuff out. And she started writing it. And she was starting to put these crimes together just on this is like in in the you know the early stages of the internet, and now there's a million crime blogs and crime podcasts. Um, she was one of the first that was doing it and was getting calls. She got a call from Dateline. They hired her as a consultant because she had put together a case they weren't able to crack. And the reason they weren't able to crack it was because when they would go to the family and talk to him, it's like, oh, this is the news. They would clam up. But some girl on the internet, yeah, I'll say anything. Who cares? And they told her everything. It was amazing. So the documentary, which is the same name as the, that's a six-part documentary. Is it on HBO? Yes, uh, I'll Be Gone in the Dark. It's Yeah, they all, six episodes are out there now. Oh, my God. And, and obviously, did you, did you have any involvement with that at all? Were you? I, you know, it's a documentary about an extraordinary woman that was made by an extraordinary woman. I love Liz Garbus. Yeah. Liz Garbus. Oh, my God. Talented woman. And so prolific. I mean, she did I'll Be Gone in the Dark, then did All In, then now she's like, she just is able to capture the essence and the absolute right angle of attack for these stories. It's incredible. It's as much a tribute to Liz and her crew as it is to Michelle and the people around her. And again, just like I was with Michelle, I'm just... The mediator, I guess the the one thing I can give myself credit for was knowing when to step the hell back and let people do their work. And both times I had the wherewithal to do that. Thank God. You know, for me as a kid, TV was something that you, I mean, I'm a bit older than you, and TV was something that you sat down and you did what I called, this might not be the most apt phrase, but you would do back then in the 60s and 70s what I refer to as Ayurvedic listening. You know, you did the most intense listening known to man. You'd watch one episode of a show or a movie and you remember every line because you literally got into a neurological electromagnetic field with the TV mm-hmm. and it was going into your brain and being chiseled into your brain. And I remembered all the words 
to the show watching it one time because that's all you had. There was no VCR. It wasn't coming back. There yeah. was nothing. You watched it then and that was it. So I would watch yeah. uh, uh, Herman Munster. I watched Gilligan's Island, F Troop. I watched all the TV uh, from when I was a kid, uh, Family Affair. <laughs> it's weird that you, you just mentioned the Ayurvedic listening for shows like Family Affair and Bewitched and, and I Dream of Genie and stuff like that. Do you think that that informed your characterization of Jack Donaghy on 30 Rock only because I'm now that I'm thinking about it, he was an evangelical salesman for that kind of sitcom hypnotism because he didn't give a crap about the content of the shows. He loved the fact that it got people into a state where he could sell products. And it was why he was so good at mimicking those rhythms on other people. Was that like a subconscious thing that got drilled into your brain and you didn't realize you had it? Probably subconscious, yeah. Yeah, because you've done a lot of very like rough, you know, the, the Mammoth, the, you know, Miami yeah. Blues, way more naturalistic stuff. And you very easily fell into those kind of inhuman rhythms that you realize when you listen to it. But that is kind of how we talk because we've been programmed by the TV. <laughs> it's really weird that that happened. Ayurvedic listening, I... What was that background for you? You grew up where? I grew up in the very, very bland suburbs of Northern Virginia, Sterling, Virginia. Was your dad in the government? Yeah, he was. A, my dad was a Marine for 20 years, and then he retired, and then he worked at USA Today at Gannett and built all their um, computer systems. So He was a tech guy. It was He was a tech guy out in Silver Spring. And I remember him saying he would talk vaguely because he couldn't even – conceive of it but he's like it's all gonna be on a computer like everything like i had a manual typewriter and i wanted an electric and he said just why don't you just wait in five years it's all gonna there won't be any typewriters there won't be like there won't be any of that just but he couldn't articulate it enough he didn't know exactly what was coming but he had an inkling because he saw what was going on you know with business the defense like department yeah what did your mom do my mom was a legal secretary uh in vienna it was all people, the, the suburbs where I grew up, it's all around 495 and everyone went into the city and made money and then came to the suburbs. When you're a child, it, it's the funny in your household and everybody's going, get up there, Patton. Patton's <laughs> so funny. Are you like the performing seal for the family? I, ha I mean, I was funny in my family, but I was also in, you know, that the term, the class clown, mm -hmm. that's actually a false term. There's a clown click in every high school. It's not, there's never just one. There's a group of people, boys and girls who are super into comedy. And that was my click. So then of course, in my home, you know, I could lift more than everyone else because I was hanging out all day with these comedy nerds. Uh, but then I would come home and my dad was, you know, he introduced me very early on to like Jonathan Winters uh, and the Smothers Brothers and stuff like that. And then that led me surreptitiously to Richard Pryor. And then weirdly enough, to Steve Martin, who Steve Martin was my gateway to Monty Python, because I heard Monty Python before Steve Martin. I didn't get it. I thought it was stupid. Then I heard Steve Martin went, oh, I get what they were doing. And then that led me back into it. And then this whole world like kind of opened up. It was great. Where did you go to college? I went to William and Mary. I went there to study writing. And when I went to William and Mary, this is in the late 80s, early 90s, they, they had a theater department, but they really didn't have like a film society or any kind of like stand up, they had a couple of improv groups and stuff like that. And then 
Now, apparently, it's just, it's even more exploded. You know, at the time, I think William Mary was more of a feeder school for like, lawyers and you know it was, it was that kind of thing they weren't really that focused on the arts they're non-majors <laughs> exactly yeah i remember i was having problems my senior year because i had taken too many courses in my major and i didn't have enough credits to graduate because i took too many english courses and i didn't understand that i was supposed to take some psychology i took a lot of geology and psychology too but i remember i had to petition the committee on degrees and and asked them to waive. It was just like nine credits that I was shy. And I was talking to my counselor and I was like, look, I really need to graduate. Like, I, and, and he was like, you actually don't need to. You can just do a whole other year. It's great. You do a whole other year as a senior and you only got to take nine credits. It'll be the best year of your life. And I'm like, no, no, you don't understand. Like I have jobs lined up because starting sophomore year, I started actually getting work as a comedian. So I'm like, by the time I was a senior, I have jobs lined up. School was in the way. Yeah. And, and then he was like, oh, what firm, like, what firm are you with? Like he, in in his mind, I had signed with a, I'm like, oh no, I'm doing Charlie Goodnights in um, North Carolina. I'm doing the Garvins. I'm doing the comedy caravan. Like I had all these gigs lined up. And then he, and then he said, I don't think uh, William and Mary wants to be known for producing comedians. Like, like as a, like kind of, and then I went, okay. And then I just like, I, I just petitioned so hard and they went fine, just get out. And they, they gave me my diploma, but I was like, ah, and, and and then like they, William and Mary produced Michelle Wolf and and John Stewart for God's sakes they should be proud of that yes oh and me oh and you comedian Patton Oswalt I'm Alec Baldwin and you're listening to Here's the Thing if you like conversations with comedians who can also act check out our archives and my conversation with Kristen Wiig who credits her college acting teacher in helping her overcome her performance anxiety. It was literally acting 101. That was one class. One class. And I was terrified to take it, but something about this class, we learned about improv, and my teacher was really supportive. And at the end of the class, he was just like, have you ever considered doing this? And I was like, no, yeah, right. So it was your teacher that planned it? It was my teacher, yeah. Hear more of my conversation with Kristen Wiig at heresthething.org. After the break, I talked to Patton Oswalt about his move to San Francisco in the early 1990s and why it prompted him to tear up his previous material and start all over. Mother's Day is coming, and Mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. Get Mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get Mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. 
I'm late. I'm late. Three very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com Rain or shine, every day is a great day for fishing, right? You got rain gear, but you can't overlook sunny day gear. A Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie has you covered on the sunniest days. Like literally. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to? Especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad spectrum UV protection. We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. Columbia PFG has you covered with their Castback TC shoe. Its OmniMax cushioning and traction system helps if you're on your feet a lot, say, fighting a fish. Not to mention keeping you sure-footed on a wet, rocking boat. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head over to Columbia.com PFG and shop all their performance fishing gear. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. Patton Oswalt was a fan of stand-up as a kid, but he didn't try his hand at it until college. It was between junior and sophomore year of college. That was that summer where I'm like, oh, I better actually figure out what I'm going to do. And I, because I couldn't really, and I, that was summer, I tried all these different jobs. I started training to be a paralegal. I was also uh, working as a party DJ. I was writing sports for a local paper under a pseudonym. Just like, what if one of these things is going to stick? And then I, one evening I went, because I always loved comedy, I went, I'll do an open mic. And I looked in the paper, there was an open mic at this place called Garvin's. And I went to Garvin's Comedy Club. Where was that? That was in D.C. on L Street between 13th and 14th Street. Very super sketchy area. I went on, I went out and I went on stage. It did not go well. But one thing that I said got like a half, got that comedian laugh from like that, ah, like that. Also, my first night on stage was also Dave Chappelle's first night on stage. No. He was 14 years old. And he, when he went on, it looked like he'd been doing it for 30 years. He was amazing. You're just like, oh my God. And, and I, and I was 19 and it, it, but you know what I really loved? I loved sitting and watching all the comedians hanging out and riffing with each other and building jokes out of thin air. And I realized, even though there's no immediate reward here for me, I want this life. My roommate in college is a comedian named Gary Laser, who I uh, was dear oh, friends with. You know, yeah, Gary, Gary Laser. Gary yeah. Laser was my, my – and then he and I were roommates. We got an apartment together for a couple oh of years. God. We lived together for a couple of years. We, I, Gary was my roommate off and on for like four or five years. And Gary yeah. – I would go to the clubs with him to the good times uh, on thirty on thirtieth and third or whatever God. the hell it was where yeah. Pat Benatar was discovered. We go to right. and we go to these different clubs with him and his friends, and they'd all get up there and perform. And I remember, you know, it was like there's no place else I'd rather be. You know, these guys, Gary Lacey, yeah. going, "I was married to my first wife." Yeah, we were together for three years, and that three years went by just like this. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he had so many materials. Material I still remember his routine, and I loved him. 
And then I go and do what I'm doing. And when I come back and do 30 Rock, it's like I'm around those people again where like on my best day, I'm not as funny as them on their worst day. You know, Tina, Carlock, all them, they're so... In terms of writing, you're not a comedian. Okay, you okay. You know, they're just so blindingly funny. And for you, did you go through a period where you're like, you're honing, you're working, you said that the thing went so and so. At what point, uh, you know, you're, you're at Garvin's in DC, at what point do you sit there and go, <laughs> I think I got this. I think that's going well. I really didn't, you know, here, here's what was weird. I felt like, one of the things I like was, I'm sitting at the source of all this material. I'm not hearing jokes secondhand. I'm here where they're being created. So I'm upstream. I'm one of the people sending it down into the you know culture, which that was also really exciting. But very early on, I learned, it's weird how you talked about the Ayurvedic listening with, with TV. I kind of had that with comedy in that I learned the rhythms very early on mm -hmm. and I could get away with very, very mediocre material. But because... I had the rhythms and because there was this comedy boom, you could kind of go up and talk in those rhythms and people would just kind of go, oh, okay, this is comedy. And then as I was doing it, I started getting good in that I was getting a lot of work. Then I remember very, very specifically, I moved to San Francisco in 1992. And this is when the comedy boom was starting to collapse and all the clubs were closing. And I went to the Holy City Zoo. I'm the new kid in town. I've been killing it on the road. I'm going to do great. And and that was a, I went into this room, Holy City Zoo, and, and on the show it's like Greg Proops, Margaret Show, Janine Garofalo, Greg Barrett, like all these comedians doing this stuff that rhythms I'd never heard before. I went up with my road rhythms, all my A stuff that I thought would kill, and it just died. Then I watched all of these comedians I'd never seen before who were the best comedians I'd ever seen. And I remember very specifically, I walked across street from the Holy City Zoo to the Taiwan restaurant on Clement Street. And I sat there with my notebook and I tore all the pages out of my notebook, all my routines. And I wrote, it was May 5th, 1992 on the time. And then I just started fresh. Like I got to start at zero now because none of that stuff works. Like I've got to start over. The road stuff doesn't work. And then I started rebuilding that. And that's when probably around four years after that was when I really felt like, oh, now I'm me on stage. And you're still in San Francisco. I'm still in San Francisco. Well, at that, I, I moved away from San Francisco in 95 because also the clubs were closing there and I got a writing job. Doing what? I was writing on uh, first two seasons of Mad TV. And you went down to LA? Went down to LA. And then- Was that your first time in LA? That was my first permanent time in LA, yeah. And, that, and that's when the Uncabaret was happening and Largo and all these alternative rooms. And I was going in there and that's, when I really, really felt like I became who I am. And that's how many years. So that's my point. How many years into your career are you before you go, I oh. think that the cake is cooked? For me, it was like eight years before I felt really. Isn't it amazing? Yeah. But but what's weird is, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of people have experienced this, I was working as a professional comedian, but I doesn't. I didn't feel like I was me. And I, I wonder if there's, I bet there's a lot of actors and writers and performers who had years of making money, but weren't feeling like they were actually doing, you know, something that was theirs. So you start writing for Mad TV, yeah. and then what kind of zone do you find yourself in? Does everything get to be different when you're in the big league, so to speak? Somewhat, but here's, here, here's the interesting thing. At the time that I was writing on Mad TV, and there were amazing writers on that show, and we got to do some really good stuff, but Mad TV 
was my introduction to, oh, this is what it's like working for a big network where you've got to serve a lot of things before you can even get to the comedy, which I've heard sometimes can happen on SNL where there's like other considerations first and then you got to get to the comedy. And at the time that I was on Mad TV, at the same time, Mr. Show was happening over on HBO. And all my friends, a lot of my friends were on, were on Mr. Show. And that was where there was nothing but the comedy. It was all about what was the best idea. And everyone was getting to work at the height of their powers. And I was so jealous of like, why can't I be over there? But it took me a while to see that I was learning some very important lessons over at Mad TV of how to circumvent the system. And also when I look back, there were real moments of brilliance that the actors and the writers could conspire together and get through around the network going, but we need to have this thing and we need to have this thing. And and they found ways to give them what they thought they wanted and then do amazing stuff. So there's always, no matter where you are, what I learned was don't look at over what other people are doing. Look at where you are and how can you make that as good and interesting as you can. So you wrote a memoir. Silver Screen Fiend. Mm. How'd you get that book published? Um, I had published a book before of like essays, but but it wasn't totally, me- there were like a couple of memoir chapters, but I wasn't confident enough to just write a full memoir at Simon & Schuster. And they liked it. And they said, do you have another book in you? And then I was looking through my old calendars at my time in the in LA in the when I moved there in 95 and I'm like my god I was like I didn't realize how obsessed I was with films because it was the first time that I really lived in a city where you could go see a movie either a new or a classic movie pretty much every night of the week in a theater not at home in a theater with people New Beverly and the New Beverly I know the New Beverly and the New Art and the New Art and all those places so I started going and I and I started kind of and I'm sure you went through the same thing with when you first started being a theater actor there must have been a time when you would just obsessively go to the theater to watch shows because you realize I want to be doing this so I'm going to absorb as much of it good, good and bad good yeah, and exa- bad. I, I loved bad theater I loved oh it. I loved to learn what not to do oh my god my friends and I would go watch bad stand up at open mics not to make fun of it but just to go oh don't do that don't do that. Right. Don't do, you know, it was, and, and same with films. Oh, when you see like the same things happening over and over again. Right. Oh, no, don't do that. Don't do that. So that kind of um, obsession, I really, you know, it, it kind of took over my life for like those four years. It's, I go, it, this is the most boring addiction memoir ever written because it's about me <laughs> being addicted to movies. Although I saw people, I got very close to tipping over the edge of, there are people that are kind of lost by films and you see them holding their like Leonard Malton guides that are just tattered and paper clipped and mar- and they, cause they've got to see every movie. And there's a, you know, in New York is an even just as equally a dangerous place to be a film fanatic because you can go see, I mean, not now, obviously, but yeah. in the heyday, you could Cinema go Village. see. Movies. I live around the corner from Cinema Village. Really? Yeah. I live downtown. Oh. But, but you, know, so you say about New Beverly is, and I remember this, I would go to, there was the KB Cerberus Theater in Washington, and I would go there. I'll never forget one day in a revival theater. I go see Last Tango, and I go into that theater, and the music and the whole, and Brando's, uh, you know, self-flagellation, all of it. I go see this movie, and I hadn't seen many movies like that. And I remember coming out of the theater, and I was hammered. Yeah. 
and the sky was gray. It's Washington. The sky was wintertime. I'm in school. Oh, it's the fall, and the sky is leaden. I remember sitting there going, like, I didn't want to go back into the world. I didn't. Yeah. I wanted to go back into the theater and go, run it again or show me another movie. I couldn't, I didn't want to face the world. You know what I mean? Yeah. I get into these weird dives, but the mood that I've been in, I wanted to see Alec Guinness in Tinker Taylor because I've been so starved for a character who's just quiet and competent and can just do, like, I was so starved for that, that that was my oasis during all this, was, oh, a quiet, non-flashy guy who can actually get stuff done. He was so good, he would clean his eyeglasses with the fat part of his tie, and it became so much a part of his character that, that, that when Le Carre wrote Smiley's People, he added that trait because of watching the TV show. It's like, <laughs> he did the character that I created better, and now I've got to adjust him to the actor that did it like that level of just inhabiting. But the thing about writing and acting, there's a risk. Alan Moore talked about this. When you truly inhabit characters long-term, there's a mental risk uh, for great writers and great actors. When you sacrifice your personality to go into these other lives, you've got to have a safe place to come out of and kind of get yourself back on the ground. And that's why I I think you see with a lot of actors who go way deep later in life, they kind of suffer. Their personality flickers a little bit and they're never quite on a steady keel after a while. You know, Peter Sellers is a great example of, you know, he basically said, I don't have a personality. It's like he sacrificed his personality before he even started acting. So you've gone kind of deep with some of you. I mean, there's not a lot, there's not a lot of the warm avuncular Alec Baldwin at the beginning of, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. How, do, do you have a place where you can come out of characters like that? Or Well, I always tell the same story. And this is, a, uh, to me, one of the most meaningful moments of my career where a director really helped me. This guy, Jamie Foley, said to me, he said, it's like that scene in Patton, when Patton slaps the guy and says, you call yourself a soldier. He said, that's what we're doing here. He says, you call yourself a salesman. He said, you're doing this for their own good. You're doing this for their own good good. You don't want to do this. He said, you got to, and once he said that to me, I felt like literally like a cartoon character where like the lightning bolts went through my shoulders down into my fingertips. I right. was like, I looked at him, I went, I got it. I, and I went out there and I was like, I'm going to fucking, I'm going to, I'm going to knock you out, man. If you don't, you got you to do whatever that, just do what the fuck I tell you to do. And I went out there and, and, and Foley, the phrase I use for when I teach acting is authorization. Mm. What authorizes you to do when you, if you go into an operating room and I've done this to prepare for a film, I watched over a hundred hours of surgery in Los Angeles and in Western Massachusetts to do the movie Malice, not because I wanted to learn surgery. My favorite line is Walter Matthau. They said, you're playing a doctor. Do you want to go observe surgery? And Walter Matthau took a pause and said, I'm a movie actor. No one (laughs) expects me to really know how to do surgery. But the point is, is that I wanted to go in that room so that when I went into the set, yeah. when I got on the stage and we did the scene, I'd seen it. Right. I knew it. I was authorized to do this because I knew it. And to me, that's vital. I need the authorization of that character. Yeah. But but I just wonder how far is too far sometimes. And I wonder that too, like when I'm writing or when I'm doing some of the more dramatic roles, like I just watched the Michael Jordan documentary. This is weird how this ties in, but- his teammates are talking in the documentary about how he was kind of an a-hole, but he needed to operate at this 
I'm a demigod level to perform at the level that he did. Like that's how he won. And at the end, like you see how kind of drained he is. He's crying a little bit. Like, I know that I was doing that, but it's what I needed to do to win. Like in art, you do wonder how much of myself do I sacrifice? How much do I hold back? You know, like that's always going to be that ongoing question. And also with, with comedy, how, when, when I was doing that special Annihilation, how deep into my own darkness do I go as a comedian until it stops being entertainment? How do you know? It's an instinct you've developed? I didn't. I mean, luckily I had years of doing comedy where I kind of had an idea, but it, when it really got down to it, I remember Bobcat Goldthwaite was directing the special and he came back into the green room before I went on and he was like, you just want to go out there, don't you? Like, I'm like, yeah, I can't think about this anymore. I have to go out there. And and you you must have seen this in plays where we've rehearsed the shit out of it. But now can we just go and get started and then we'll fucking figure it out if we can start? That's the best way to figure it out. Just let me fucking go out there and I'll figure it out. Yeah. You know, I see people who are comic talent who I think I'll never forget. I said to Chris Rock one time, I said, I knew some guys that were a very powerful group of people in the music business and had a lot of access to rights and things. And I said to Chris, you should play Miles Davis. I said, I know you're an actor. You're you're an actor. I mean, you're funny mm -hmm. and you do all that. You're marauding the stage and the way, you know, yeah. Chris's shows, I always cry. And I feel the same way about you. You're an actor. Mm -hmm. And do you sometimes feel like, okay, I've done the comedy thing. I got that in my pocket, marauding the stage with a microphone in Charlotte, bedazzling everybody. <laughs> it's time to go do something else. You know, the thing about stand-up is it doesn't have to be either or. You can go do other things and then go do – That's I remember I went and saw – me and Maria Bamford went and saw Jerry Steinfeld's uh, comedian documentary together. And we were walking out and she was like, we picked a profession that we can do forever. We can always do stand-up. We can also do other things, but we can always do stand-up. And stand-up is such a, it is one of the last pure, I guess, dictatorial posts where I think it, I say it, that's it. And if anything, you get to a point where, I mean, maybe I'll get to the point where Chris Rock is, where you can get to the point where you not only elicit laughter, you elicit what I like to call the laughter of disbelief, where <laughs> Chris Rock says things and people are like, the fuck? Oh, uh, shit. I mean, that's true, but holy fuck. I mean, did, can he? That I, I mean, that is true, but we don't like he says things where the audience, you can you, you feel the laughter is like, I mean, we all know that, but we're not supposed to say that out loud, right? But he just fucking said it. So I guess we're going to like that level of, you know, maybe I can get to that level, but I never want to stop doing stand up, but I definitely want to do other things because especially if you do stand up long enough and you try to be as wired into not only other people's foibles but especially your own you see in acting where people don't go deep enough with that or they're not as honest like oh you pulled back why didn't you just stay and go that deep so then you want to do that as an actor actor and comedian Patton Oswald. if you're enjoying this conversation don't keep it to yourself Tell a friend and subscribe to Here's the Thing on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, Patton Oswalt talks about falling in love again. Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. 
In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian Cocktail Maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. Make mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. I'm late. I'm late for a very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from undercover tourists. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from undercover tourists and authorized seller and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with undercover tourists now and save. UndercoverTourist.com rain or shine every day is a great day for fishing right you got rain gear but you can't overlook sunny day gear a columbia pfg solar stream elite hoodie has you covered on the sunniest days like literally i mean who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish but why do it if you don't have to especially when this solar stream elite hoodie is built with broad spectrum uv protection we're talking upf 50 and it has airflow so you don't overheat and what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. Columbia PFG has you covered with their Castback TC shoe. Its OmniMax cushioning and traction system helps if you're on your feet a lot, say, fighting a fish. Not to mention keeping you sure-footed on a wet, rocking boat. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, Head over to Columbia.com slash PFG and shop all their performance fishing gear. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing. In Patton Oswalt's Netflix comedy special, I Love Everything, he talks about finding love again. Not to bum you guys out, but I was very, very resigned to living in the gray. I was, after what I went through a couple years ago, I was just going to, I'm going to live in the gray, and I'm just going to raise my daughter alone and try to put, focus all the joy and adventure in life on her and give her that life, and I will merely exist. I'm not going to hit joy again, but that's fine. I can still exist. That's okay. And then I met this poem of a woman who relit the sky and I just said I'm going to run at love again Uh, if you see love run at it run at love if you see it trust me run at love Patton Oswalt married actress Meredith Salinger in November 2017 her breakout role came at age 15 as the lead in the journey of Natty Gann I wanted to know how Patton Oswald found such a perfect match a second time. I was married to this extraordinary woman, and I think the fact that I was with her for so long was what helped me see very quickly this other extraordinary woman. Because Meredith Sounder, who is, yes, child actress, insanely gorgeous, teen beyond. actress, g- beyond gorgeous, like, like classic 1940s 
movie siren yeah, gorgeous. Like Gene like that tyranny. Yes, exactly. How did you meet her? We have a friend in common, uh, Martha Plimpton, amazing actress. I love and Martha. She, Martha Plimpton likes to do these salons where she brings various people together for dinners at her house. That's what I do. And the morning of it, I had to fly back from Austin at like six in the morning. And when I got home, like, I can't go out again. I'm so dehydrated and exhausted. And I, I'm like, I'm so sorry. I have to beg off. And then the next day, Meredith sent me a message saying, you missed the best lasagna last night, dude. And then I wrote back a uh, story of my life. You know, maybe we'll go get coffee or something. Sorry, you know, and then we just started, this was in February of 2017. I'm still deep in my grief, but I'm just talking to, we're just talking about books and politics. And oh my God, the world is insane right now. And it got to the point where of the many things I missed about Michelle, I missed having someone fascinating to talk to in the dark at the end of the day. So as I would put Alice to bed and then I would just get on my phone at, like at nine o'clock and I would go, Hey, are you here? And she's like, Oh yeah, what's going on? Cause she was also like, she has dated some fascinating and very troubled people in her life. And um, she was taking a hiatus from the, the damaged geniuses. And so she was just in her apartment with her cats and we would just, Every night, like, okay, same time tomorrow night. And for three months, we never spoke on the phone, never met in person. We would just write for like hours about everything and just talking, talking, talking. And then without us either, because I was not looking to date anyone, not looking yeah. to fall in love. Like, oh, someone. And there was also someone that was, this is going to sound weird. She wasn't in my immediate circle of friends or family. So every conversation didn't start off with the, are you doing okay? How, like, this was just me talking about to someone with an incredibly agile brain. It's a nice break from your suffering. Exactly. And so we would just connect on all these different levels. And then without knowing it, we just kind of, I just, we fell in love with each other w without realizing it. And then we finally met in May after three months of just talking in the lobby of Shutter's Hotel. Aww. And she, I go, I go, let's go get dinner. She goes, well, let's go somewhere where, if it doesn't work out, we were so realistic about it. Like if we meet and it doesn't click, we either of us can leave. And I go, absolutely. That's a great idea. And so we went to Shutter's hotel and had dinner in the restaurant there. But when we met and she tapped me on the shoulder in the lobby and I turned around and her first words were, and I'm saying this as a brag because Meredith Salinger said to me, um, she goes, oh, you're so cute. And I was like, okay. And then <laughs> that was, yeah. Duh. You're like Woody Allen it. and played against him. You're like, Fnuh. Uh, Fnuh. I mean, to the woman. She is like, she is enragingly beautiful. Oh yeah. No, it's like, like, just like, what the hell? Are you kidding me? Love is love. Oh my you God. Find love. You find it where you find it. And when you find it, the only thing is you say, thank you. You're grateful. You're grateful. Yeah. And I was like, I was so, obviously, I had some, oh, my God, I'm getting married. But also, it's not like we're in our 20s trying to discover ourselves. I don't know if, I, like, at that age, if you know, when you find the other person, like, let's get married. What I'm not going to go through all yeah. this. When you know, you know. Yeah, and I remember talking to other widows, and they were like, ignore all the stuff. about Because one of the widows that I knew was, was a woman. She was like, I waited 10 years to get married, and I got the same crap from people because they're like, she waited too long. She got grief because she waited too long. Right. You know what I mean? So, 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 so she's like, there's no way to do it. No one will ever be happy with it. You have to be happy. You can't live their lives. Go do what you have to do. And it's been great. And Meredith is the most amazing mom to our daughter. She is like, again, it, it's like, 
uh, Alice had Michelle, this amazing crime fighter, and now she has Meredith, who's this amazing adventurer. I'm following a small basket of people's careers, of which yours is one of them. Wow. I mean, I find you as somebody who, and I really, really mean this, the thing about you that I find so exciting is anything is possible. There's just nothing you could do that would surprise me. Dramatically acting, I mean, the writing and so forth, but in terms of comedy and comedy shows and stand-up, but also dramatic acting, I think that you're capable of anything. Thank you. I, I mean- Even marrying Meredith Salinger. That is that must have been the okay. That was the real. Oh my God, wow! The Ratatouille married Natty Gann. I don't know how he pulled it off. That's but right. It, it yeah, he did. Comedian Patton Oswalt. I'm Alec Baldwin. Here's the thing: is brought to you by iHeartRadio. We're produced by Kathleen Russo, Kerry Donahue, and Zach McNeese. Our engineer is Frank Imperial. Thanks for listening. is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.